0: I just remember being in the audience in a theater and just thinking like just this live experience that you're sharing with so many people you're sharing with your cast on stage but also sharing with this theater full of people in an audience and I was like I want to feel that.
1: Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter, the creator, producer, and host of New York City's longest-running comedy variety show, No Name in a Bag of Chips. That voice you heard was Alex She She's our guest today. Alex is a wonderful singer, actress, writer. Friends of No Name may know her as the drummer for our house band, The Summer Replacements. She has also penned a solo show called Single What Female? And she'll be doing her cabaret show this fall at Don't Tell Mama. Kind of sweet for those of us who've been with No Name for 28 years. Early on in our existence, Don't Tell Mama was actually No Name's home for about three years. So it'd be fun to go see her performing at Don't Tell Mama. We'll get into all that with Alex in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. escape to Green Bay. We are sponsored today by the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Check out any of their luxury accommodations. They have five luxury suites, each of which has a private bath and many of which have their own jacuzzi. Your day will start out with a fresh, delicious, homemade breakfast prepared by your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stever. Tom and Linda will also help you plan your day, if you would like, alerting you to events and fine restaurants in the area. So get away to Green Bay. For more information and for reservations, go to www.asterhouse.com. That's www.astorhouse.com. Here here might not even be a bad place to start. uh, Alex, I mean, like, we've both been in the game, whatever the game is, <laughs> it always struck me who stayed in it and who did not. And sometimes it was like the people that you were like, these are the people I wanted to be. These are the people who like, I would pay money to have what you have. And we were like, oh no, you know, I, I got a job at at J at C JCPenney, you know? And it's like, Well, you know, I I imagine you're, no, no, I'm really, you know, I'm I'm pretty much, you know, I I don't have enough time, you know, I come home and, you know, got to feed the kid and it's, and I understand why people make the decisions, but it still hurts my heart sometimes to see people who had that thing.
0: There are some people that I went to school with, thank you, Stranger Things season four, for um, having Nancy going to Emerson College. I went to Emerson. I am class of 93. Thank you very much. <laughs> so there are definitely some- We can some... edit
1: that, by the way, if you want to change the year.
0: <laughs> I am, you know a what?
1: graduate of Emerson College. That would be of hilarious.
0: That would be hilarious. But no, I know how old I am. <laughs> um, so, and as I am doing a cabaret show that most likely is going to be titled Late Bloomer, um, I'm talking about how old I am and, uh, I'm talking about like midlife crisis and all that crap. So like, no, I turned 50 last year. So, um, I'm saying that live on a podcast right now, but hey. we're not live
1: again. We can edit this. <laughs> yeah. So
0: because
1: I know but, uh, there with an alcoholic beverage involved. So, so I mean, I mean I'm going to say, gonna say go
0: ahead, keep it. And, and if anybody who, like, actually looks me up later and thinks I'm younger, go right ahead. Um, or just wants to say, oh, my God, you just don't age. That's fine. So, right, so we
1: we'll look. All right, so I'm so sorry. So, anywho, have your story, when I'm saying Emerson College, is, yes,
0: like, there were, oh, my God, so many stupidly talented people that I went to school with. And, you know some of whom have definitely gone on mm-hmm. to some mm-hmm. people from my class have definitely gone on to bigger and, and brighter things. And some people have decided, you know, they've made the decision. I like now nah, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. And I respect both choices Absolutely. because, you know, some people decided to go more behind the scenes, you know, because I saw them as talented actors, but you know, they've decided to go more behind the scenes And they're doing as well as they would have as an actor. So I'm like, you found your spot. You found Mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. niche. You found what worked for you. So I can't necessarily go, oh my God, you should have stayed in acting because you were so brilliant back in college. But I'm like, you found something you were still passionate about. And you're doing well. You're successful. And you're, and you know, some of them have a family now. Some of them do not, but they're still successful at what they're doing. So I do my best not to go, oh, you should have stayed with this. Because like, as long as you're happy where you are, that's fantastic.
1: For me, it's not so much a matter of, like I have known a couple of people who were super talented who didn't follow that particular performing path. But found places they fit in. I don't mourn them, you know. In in, in a superficial way, I kind of mourned like, oh, but they they had that gift. They had the shining.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I was like but the shining. Uh,
1: <laughs> but but anyway, but those I I don't mourn so much on the selfish level. Like I would like to have seen what they would have done. Oh, but that's fun. yes. But the there are definitely that, some that people I like that I get sad about are the ones who they didn't choose to give it up. They either had it taken from them or let it be taken from them. And uh, yeah. life sometimes makes both things happen. And if it's taken from you, you know, okay, yeah. you know, that's fine. But the one I get sad about are the ones who like, you know, you can see it like, oh, life got them, you know? Yeah. You know what? I'm going to tell you a story, and this is really not necessarily relevant to our conversation in some ways. I have a circumstance where... I've had bad eyesight for a number of years, but I've basically lost my vision in the last year plus. Concurrent with pandemic, so we've not been doing shows regularly because of that. But uh, late last summer, went with a friend to Coney Island to do karaoke on the boardwalk. We had some friends there, you know, go and just, just have a good day. And someone who came to a few no-name shows over the years comes up to me and says, so, I guess you won't be doing shows anymore. And uh, I, I wanted to punch her out. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, you've got new challenges now. Are you still going to do it? That's
0: fine, but she's like, I, I guess you're not going to be doing shows anymore. Oh, man. To make the assumption that just because, yes, you have certain limitations at this moment, that you're going to just drop and give up doing the shows
2: yeah,
1: like, is I, appalling I can, I can to me. I still...
0: Yeah, you know, I can still
1: get on the mic and do exactly what I've done before. I just can't see the mic. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you someone know. will help me with that.
0: Yeah, and this <laughs> is something know. that I've appreciated the entire time we have been dealing with this, is that you have created a community here. You have created a wonderful, open community of people that... Basically, they've been wonderful people on stage. They've been wonderful people in the audience. And there are all these people that are like, we want to help you continue doing what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And no one more so than you. I'm talking to my guest today, me. Um <laughs> All right, so we're talking about the people who didn't see it all the way through. Let's talk about you. First of all, how early did you know you wanted to perform? And at that point, did you know what you expected or wanted that to look like?
0: Oh, goodness. Kind of, yeah. Because I remember seeing The Sound of Music. Thank you, Julie Andrews, The Sound of Music. My parents were big theater people, as it was and there was also Were either was, of
1: them performers
0: no well in a way <laughs> my father was a morning man of radio Carl D'Souza for when people are listening to this if any of you are Boston people and you are of a certain age you probably listen to Carl D'Souza on WBZ in Boston and he was on the air for around 44 years whoa yeah it's so crazy to think about it because like my mother was, as I like to say, his third, last, and favorite wife. Mm-hmm. And he started working in the business. He was older. He was 56 when I was born. So he started working in the business in like the 40s. And he hit his peak in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. you know, which was a golden age of radio. And, and he kept it going. Through the early eighties, because I was thirteen when he retired. That was no, wait, 80.
1: when he retired with his idea with the the station.
0: I'm gonna say it was more the station, because my father definitely would have kept it going as long as he could have. Because like he was the morning man up until like I was like ten, and then he did three years of middays. I think it was suggested he retire. But he would have definitely kept it going if he could have. Because he just loved did he, did being he, on the air. Did he seemed to miss it? Yes. And he took any opportunity to still do events. There was a wonderful woman who would hold events. She was basically a huge event planner in Boston. If you were having a big party of any kind, you were going to talk to this woman. She would call my dad to MC all the time. So even after he retired, I remember like being in college. And she was having one of these events she had my dad MC it. And it was for the organization CARE, which is a charitable organization. I remember <laughs> like, being with my best friend from high school who was going to Berkeley at the time, and I was at Emerson. And my parents dropped me off in town. I was hanging out in Boston with my friend. And then my parents were taking us both home. So we just happened to go to the Copley Plaza Hotel where the event was being held. And we tried to sort of sneak in. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing my dad's voice. I was like, I don't know, 19, something like that, maybe 20. And we were not allowed into this event. So this was well after he retired because he retired when I was 13. So this was seven years even after that. And so whenever he could do something, he would do it. Yeah, Because he loved being on the air. He loved being there for his listeners. He used to make documentaries, teaching people about other countries. There were so many things. So I definitely think he would have kept it going if he could have.
1: And wasn't bitter
0: about it. I don't think he was bitter. It was just something he missed mm-hmm. terribly. One of my favorite moments, I was doing a show at a summer theater. This was, I think, like 96 or something. I was doing a show at a summer theater in New Jersey. It's called Swing Time Canteen. And I played the character Joe, who is the drummer of this all-female swing band. And I had a great time doing the show. But during every show, I had to get somebody from the audience to dance with me. And this one particular show, my parents were there and I asked my dad to be the one to dance with me. And that man stole the damn show. (laughs) He's cracking jokes while on stage with me. And I was dying. Was that fun or was that annoying? It was a combination. Because at (laughs) first I'm like, oh my God, really? And the other part of me is like so perfect right now because he's totally sucked in the crowd. And I was so proud. I was like, this is my dad who's just like getting the crowd going. It was so funny after the show we're talking to audience members who have come backstage and whatever. And my parents are there and my dad is there. And all these older ladies are talking <laughs> to my dad. They are still smitten. Cause like he was a handsome man. Mm-hmm. And so like, there were lots of people that would always want to talk to him that he still had it, but he was totally hamming it up while dancing with me on stage. He definitely was a performer. And my mother was a wonderful singer, Any singing I do, I inherited it from my grandmother and my mother because my grandmother, before coming to America from Denmark, she was a wonderful operatic soprano and then came to the States. And unfortunately, that did not get to stick, but she sang in her church choir and all that. And then my mother was a wonderful soprano in her own right. She also sang in a church choir, but she sang with a choir that is now known as Masterworks Chorale. I can't remember what they were called mm. originally. They have different branches and franchises all over the country. She got to sing on stage with Boston Lyric Opera. She did De Meister Singer with Sarah Caldwell, who was one of the first female conductors, the Metropolitan Opera, and she worked with the Boston Lyric Opera. So my mother got to sing in this. She needed extra chorus people. So they brought in Masterworks Chorale. And so my mom got to be on stage in this major opera conducted by Sarah Caldwell. So while she, in my mind, was definitely more a backstage person, Mm. was still a wonderful performer in her own right. So... Yeah, I definitely kind of got it from them. <laughs> a little the bit.
1: So to go back to the original question on there, you're a little girl. You envision yourself as a performer. And if so, what kind of performer?
0: Well, you of course I was, was going to do musical music theater. I that, saw The Sound of Music and I wanted we to play Maria and I wanted to do musical theater. You in the theater? I did not. But I did see Annie when I was, I think the first time I saw it, when I was like six. In In Boston? In Boston. I was determined. Born in Maine, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was born in, uh, Bo- I was born in a hospital in Boston, which is now Brigham and Women's, but I think it was at the time it was called Boston Women's Hospital or Lying In or something. And then was brought to Concord, Massachusetts. So I'm I'm a local. So basically, I saw a lot of tours of shows or shows before they went to Broadway. Basically, if it made it in Boston, it could go anywhere. Lacajo Fall tested in Boston before it went to Broadway. And my parents saw that. And at the time, I was like, you totally could have taken me. But I think my dad was also reviewing shows at the time for the radio station he was at. So he was an arts critic. You know, there were some shows he took us to, like I saw Peter Pan with Sandy Duncan, I saw it both in Boston and on Broadway. Mm-hmm. What's terrible is I can't remember which <laughs> which came first. You know, it's like, did I see it on Broadway first and then the first national tour with her? Or was it in <laughs> Boston and then I saw her on Broadway? All I know is I was about nine years old and I was just floored. Cause that was also another show where I was like, Oh my God, I totally want to do that. And then as I kept growing as a human being and I'm about five ten, I was like, <laughs> they are never gonna carry me on this wire. And they're never going to have me as Peter Pan because all the women who have played Peter Pan, Mary Martin and Sandy Duncan, and the gymnast woman. Oh my God, I can't believe I can't remember her name. I I always thought
1: it was weird that they had women always playing Peter Pan anyway. Right? Um, And I don't
0: know how that started. And that's some history. Michael Dale, we need to talk to you about the history of the casting of Peter Pan because if anybody's going to know,
1: Mike Dale writes a wonderful weekly column for com. Ain't nobody around who knows more about what's going on in theater and the history of musical theater than Michael Dale. Certainly check out his column. Very insightful, very funny, and just a wonderful, wonderful writer. So anyway... I'm still trying to find about uh, Sound of Music and Annie. These Annie were all the first, shows that influenced show, me. the first
0: show that you saw? I'm pretty sure, yeah. It was between Annie and Peter Pan that I saw. And first and, shows. and
1: you see this, and what are you thinking? Are you thinking, that's what I want to do? I want to be yes. on the stage? Yes.
0: That's, and that's it totally it specifically
1: the stage or just performing in general?
0: I really think it was for the stage because, you know, I'd seen movies. Of course, like I'd seen The Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I wanted to do that too, but... I just remember being in the audience in a theater and just thinking like just this live experience that you're sharing with so many people. You're sharing with your cast on stage, but also sharing with this theater full of people in an audience. And I was like, I want to feel that. I want to know more about this. Yeah, and when I did plays in school, I think one of the first things I ever did Besides Cinderella Goes to Court, which was in fifth grade. Yes, my fifth grade teacher. I don't know if she wrote this or found a script, but we did a play of Cinderella Goes to Court where Cinderella sued her evil stepsisters. And I was one of the evil stepsisters. And I will never forget that. I'm like, please tell me there's a copy of that play somewhere. Because other people need to do it. You know, when I was in fifth grade, so that was like 10, 11. So that had to be like literally 1980, 81. Mm -hmm. I think of when my church, the church I went to, West Concord Union Church, they were doing a production, the original half hour version of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Basically, there were not enough boys in the choir. And also, I really wanted this part i had listened to this music Mm -hmm. i learned close every door to me and Mm -hmm. i sang it for the music director i told her i'm like can i just sing this for you like this was confidence that i don't have today (laughs) but i was determined i was like i need to sing this close every door to me and i sang it for her next thing you know i am playing joseph in joseph and the technicolor dream at west concord union church Ten years old, what was so funny is that the uh Episcopalian church, Trinity Church in Concord, also <laughs> was doing Joseph and the Technicolor dreamcoat and had a female Joseph. Mm. so we had like our version, and then we invited the Trinity Church group kids uh, and, junior and choir they had
1: a little bit more heft
0: um possibly because whatever. yeah, a little more heft in the p r And that was the church my dad went to because my dad was a devout, as he would put it, (laughs) Episcopalopian. They came to our church and performed and like I got to meet the other female Joseph. I believe she was also 10 or 11. Yeah, because, you know, we were both junior choir members. They were both junior choir productions (laughs) of the show. All I know is I had the best time and it was definitely a moment for me to go, oh, I need to do this. Like, this is something I definitely want to do. What I love about my parents was that they wanted us to be happy. Now, my father was worried that I would become a bag lady. Um, And I told him, well, I'll just put my Oscar in my bag. But...
1: <laughs> Boy, if you're aiming towards theater, have the Oscar come in?
0: I know, right? Because at the time, I think I was watching a lot of movies. And, and so... I think I just was like, I'll put my Oscar, my Tony and whatever words I get in my bag. Cause I was kind of determined and he just wanted to make sure that we were of course successful because even radio, particularly now you do not want me to go on my rant about what's happened to radio in these days. Right. Um, my sister really loved it. Our high school Concord Carlisle high school to this day has a fantastic radio station. You can stream WIQH 88.3 right now. And they even have a music festival. When my sister and I were there, it was an ugly brown trailer in the back of the school, but it was so fun and it was exciting. You know, it's like, we may have only had a thousand watts of power at the time, but we got to play music we really liked. And both of us are music junkies. It was a great training ground. For my sister, well, it's also
1: great to have passions for music and get a gig where you can play the music you want to play. Exactly, right? You know, and I I, I mean, no one professionally had that opportunity nowadays. No, you know,
0: it's it's so hard. What kind of a a radio person was your dad? Actually, when he started in nineteen forty one, thank you very much. Mm. He was the newsman for the Marjorie Mills Show and Marjorie Mills in Boston was one of the first female hosts in radio and was incredibly popular. She and my dad apparently just hit it off. Like, my dad was only in his early 20s. He was pretty much fresh out of college. He was her newsman, and then they sort of became a partnership. I always like to say it was the early Regis and Kathy Lee. They had this talk show, because that's the way radio was back in the time. And then when she decided to retire... My dad took over that and it was in the mornings. And so he had his own show. It was primarily a lot of talk, like variety stuff. Eventually there was music. And I remember going to WBZ when I was uh, a kid and he was playing disco and stuff. Cause <laughs> it was the seventies. And so they had music and a lot of, they played disco and a lot of soft rock, a lot of ambrosia lot of christopher cross but he was always a newsman like he Mm -hmm. wanted to go into radio to be a broadcast journalist i remember like one of his closest friends his name was gene pell he was at cbs and every once in a while he would like have my dad he would just like call my dad and say hey can you come to turkey there's this story we need and my parents were with my sister who was then like three at the time um and they're like yes yes we can do that. We're going to be in Greece and we can easily go to Istanbul. And so like my sister got to go to Istanbul when she was three. And my and so like she and my mom were hanging out while my dad like took care of this story in Istanbul and then sent it off to Jean. So he was always uh, wait, wait, there to wait, be wait, a We, we need
1: somebody to go to uh, get call. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, that, is that the deal? Like, yeah. would he, he just at that time, he was just the on-call guy or did he have he, a regular gig?
0: At the time, I'm not quite sure, but I know that was his thing. He your, your took. He was a photojournalist. How old
1: were you? Or were you I now? was
0: not even born yet. But yeah, my dad wasn't doing as much traveling at the time because in 1971 he was in Ireland during the Troubles, mm. and I remember something happened, and I think my mother was worried about him getting home, mm-hmm. and I think that was a the time they discussed. Maybe him not doing as much journalism outside of the country Mm -hmm. because he would now have two children other than just one and it might not have been as safe.
1: When did he first get to be a regular radio personality?
0: Doing his own thing, I think like 1944. He started with Marjorie Mills in 1941 and then was doing it regularly in the late 40s. And then he had the first children's television show in New England and possibly the country by 1948, because he was fascinated with television as well. And he did that, but he was on WBZ radio until 1986.
1: So you do Cinderella Goes to Court. You <laughs> I do, do Joseph, Joseph you and the Tactical or Dreamcoat. How old, you you how old are you when you do Joseph?
0: I was 10.
1: You're not even junior high then, Yeah, right? no, okay. not even junior
0: high. And, right, and like so and, I did and, one you, show- And you make your way, way
1: towards junior high and high school. You're from the Boston area. Do they have the fame school? Do oh, you know, good lord! No, their at least of
2: that
0: or whatever. And were you looking to get to there? At the time, I didn't know. I just thought maybe my parents would know more about that. But oh, good lord, they didn't. And I don't think they had at that time. A and any they're not type nudging of... you that way anyway. No, right? they're not totally nudging me. How'd they're they just feel sort of like you. Did they know about your desires to do this? They did. But I was in school, and they wanted me to just stay in school. Mm. And like, while definitely upper middle class, to think about going to some private or specialty school might have been still out of their price range. So they were just happy that I was auditioning for things for school shows. There was a middle school show I did. And then we all realized, including myself, that I really wanted to do this when I was a freshman in high school, Now, in middle school, I did track, and I really liked it. And I was actually pretty good at it. And when I was learning about the musical and that the rehearsals would clash with track practice, I asked the track people, I'm like, what if I get into the musical? Can we work something out? And they were like, no. And when I chose the musical, where I was the only freshman in the cast... For Once Upon a Mattress. I was in the ensemble and I'm like, I don't care where I am. I'm like, I'm the, you know, I'm in the cast. And I chose that over potentially becoming a track star. We all knew which direction I was headed in. You could be
1: making your living as the world's best shot putter. I
0: could have been an Olympian
1: for all I know. Although your career might be winding down by this point. (laughs) So in high school, are you starting to formulate a plan on what you can do with your career?
0: I can't say I had an organized plan. I just knew this is what I wanted to do. And of course, there are plenty of people that are like, are you sure about that? And I did wonder, I'm like, do I want to be an actor? Do I want to just be a singer? Do I want to just do musical theater? Musical theater was the main goal. But being an actor in general just seemed to be the way to go. And, and and I have to interject here because longtime fans of No Name probably know
1: her as the drummer <laughs> for the house band at Otto's Shrunken Head. She we love you, Alex Ottos. the Assassin de Where does drumming come in? How oh. did you become a drummer?
0: As I mentioned, I'm from the Boston area. And I'm from a suburb of the Boston area, Concord, Massachusetts, which essentially is home of the Revolutionary War. So... I grew up seeing fife and drum corps for years, and I was part of the Middlesex County 4-H Fife and Drum Corps. I started at age ten and was okay. officially ten through fourteen, and then I was an honorary and, member and through seventeen.
1: Should, I just want to be a part, and that's the I just wanted the to building. be a part,
0: and though what was crazy when I first started, it's like even though I my passion was like I always loved hearing the drums of fife and drum corps, I became a Fifer. But finally, when I was fifteen. I decided I'm like, I really do want to play drums. And initially my parents were like, oh my God, really? You know, I tried piano age six to 10, but I didn't practice enough. And that is like my main regret in life. So drumming had been sort of a thing in my head for a long time.
1: Did did your parents get you a kit right away?
0: They got me a kit pretty early. They did. Because they knew I needed to practice. Mm -hmm. So we went to someplace in New Hampshire and I had a Rogers, which is like a swing kit. Those are from like the 40s. And I had a Rogers kit for a long time. And then my college graduation present was a Yamaha power special, which I still have. It's become the drum tree at Christmas because my husband for our fifth anniversary of marriage gave me a lovely vintage Slingerland kit and i love it you get out of college when you get out of college are you thinking arts what are you thinking when you're getting out of college oh my god i'm thinking high school rather well out of high school i'm thinking i'm like i'm gonna go to emerson and i'm gonna learn all this stuff so you actually planning on going to emerson basically i knew i couldn't handle a school that was out in the middle of the woods so i needed to be in the city but i knew i wasn't ready i mean i grew up in the suburbs. And I grew up in a very sheltered household. I knew that I could not come to New York right away. I was like, I as much as I wanted so to New apply York to was NYU. A New York was going to be a destination, but I knew I wasn't ready for Juilliard or NYU. So I did mm-hmm. not apply to them. I literally applied to two schools. I applied to Emerson because I'd read out all about them. And I applied to Boston University because my mother was an alum. Oh. Okay. And they also had a good theater program. I had barely gotten into BU, but I wasn't, well, the thing about BU was that at the time they didn't let freshmen audition for shows. So I was like, what? And I wasn't sure I was ready for that. But I remember when I went to Emerson, when I did the tour, I'm waiting in the lobby at Brimmer Street. A class had gotten out and all these people suddenly appear in the lobby. And at one point, there are these two people and they start doing a scene from Shakespeare and they just start going back and forth and they're marvelous, they're so good and they're just having so much fun. And at one point they're rolling on the floor and they're just playing with each other and they finish the scene and they look at each other and like, oh my God, that was so much fun. What's <laughs> your name? They had not met and they just had <laughs> fallen into the scene And they had so much fun together and they introduced each other to themselves. And I was like, I want to go here. So you didn't Um, get Julie yet again? No, I
1: put out your appeal. I know this has been a lifelong dream of yours. Put out an appeal in case anyone is listening here.
0: Oh, my God. Like, okay, Now, mind you, at the time I did showboat, I did not know my actual heritage. I always like to say I was a white girl until 2005. So I am a mixed race person. I, you know, what I love about Showboat, as problematic as it can be, it's considered the first actual musical, not an operetta, not an opera. It's considered the first musical because it had an actual story to follow. There's a play and there's music that continue the plot, save for the songs that Julie sings. It also was the first musical with people of color in it. And it deals with the story of a mixed-race character. And it's the first musical to do that. And this was in 1927. This was huge back then. So, yes, Julie is a bucket-roll character for me. I may be considered too old for her now, but I am totally ready to play her at any time. And I know both of her songs very well. And uh, I I do believe I have Bill in my cabaret show, which is going to be at Don't Tell Mama, September 28th, October 12th, and October 15th. as
1: as a pitch for you to get an audition for Julie. But, (laughs) But let's get this right now. This amazing woman is going to be doing her first solo
0: cabaret show in a few years. What dates are these? It'll be September 28th, October 12th, and October 15th. I will be at Don't Tell Mama, the tentative title is Late Bloomer. Come on down, seven o'clock shows. They're going to be fun.
1: And, and you got to check it out. And, and also, this is, has a place close to my heart because No Name, early on in its existence, our home base for uh, about three and a half years, I think, uh, With Don't Tell Mama.
0: What happened for you at Emerson? What did you get out of there? I am class of 93. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, I'm going to go straight to New York. But then I was like, I need more Is it, credits. was that your thought? Is that, I'll go that, to Evanston, and then I'll go to New York? Of course. Everybody wants to go to Broadway right after out of school, you know, and you want to get management, your agent and all this stuff. You know, as I realized, I'm like, OK, I need some more credits. And so I started doing theater in Boston and luckily was able to like while I was in college, I did um, community theater and I did murder mystery dinner theater. <laughs> yes. I did medieval dinner theater. I did the medieval manor in Boston. I was a wench. And I um, and I had a great time there because like you learn how to work a crowd. You get to sing silly songs. I worked with s- stupidly talented people there as well. And many of whom who had been there for decades. So I, I had a great time there. Then, you know, I did... Various theater, I worked with Speakeasy Stage. That's where I did Once on This Island, where I got to play Osaka, which is uh, still also another bucket role to do again sometime. This is uh, after Emerson, but before yeah. New York? yes. Basically, wedding. I was just keep trying to keep working. And I was doing so extra work. I was doing industrials. Um, Wait, was, I, there, was there a lot of film
1: work, uh, film and TV work to be done in Boston at that time?
0: Um, yes, it was something that was... Uh, I can't say it was new, mm-hmm. but it was still something that I felt was blossoming before Boston started their whole "Hey, we'll give you tax breaks," you know, and making it serious mm-hmm. to the studios in New York, saying uh, that, studios. That, that when Dennis Leary broke through, uh, uh, probably. Uh, well, he was. <laughs> I mean, he was already doing comedy and all this stuff, but I definitely think you know anything he did um, was definitely. They're like. Boston's a great place to work, have films. So there was more and more stuff that so, was opening up in there. Um, so
1: what made you say, okay, now's the time to go to New York.
0: You know, I had just enough credits. Basically at one point I was just like, if I don't go to New York now, I never will. And how old are you at that point? I'm in my twenties. And like a lot of people had gone like right after college, they're starting at like 21, 22. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was 26, 27, 27. That's on the verge of late yes. for going to New York. Clutch your pearls, the whole thing. It's like, what? You want to go to New York now when you're so old? So I started trying to audition for things. You know, like I think it was like 97, 98. I started trying to audition for shows. I would go to New York because you could get this commuter flight on Delta for $50. And so I would go to New York and I would go to certain auditions and then I would come back same day or the next day because I could stay with a friend mm. and it was great. But then I was like, I really need to start thinking about focusing. It's like, if I'm gonna try Broadway, I gotta go. And I had my union card um, and I thought, okay, it's like, I gotta give this a shot. And it's one of those things where, you know most people who have a three to five year plan, it can take longer, <laughs> four years in, I did get to do an Encores production at New York City Center. I was part of the ensemble for New Moon, Sigmund Romberg Operetta. Now, mind you, I mentioned it's 2003. I'd come to New York in 99. And it was, oh, it was so great. And it was beautifully done. They got like a couple people from Metropolitan Opera and they had a a handful of people from New York city opera and the metropolitan opera in this ensemble. We had some 30 person orchestra and we had an extra chorus. Cause like there was some ensemble that were singers and dancers. And then there was an extra chorus, which I was part of, which was another 30 odd people on stage. And you could <laughs> see us. You know, they wanted that extra sound.
1: They're also recreating uh, shows from a time when that was not uncommon. That's yeah. a, part of what you were paying for when you threw down your hard-earned four bucks. So you finally hit New York. What are you thinking? Is it matching
0: what you were expecting? Different challenge? Or um, what? There, There's a part of me that, of course, assumed I would, of course, get work right away you know, or something at least it's like, I figured it would take maybe at least a year or two something. My goal was to be on Broadway, like to do that. I hadn't even thought much about off Broadway, even though I knew there were great things happening off Broadway. I was like, my goal is Broadway. But I, but at the same time, I just wanted to work. You know, I'm just auditioning. I was going to like all the equity calls. I was getting up before five o'clock in the morning. I'm going to all these auditions you definitely have moments like when I'm like, oh my god, nothing's happening, nothing's happening anywhere, and you're trying to do classes. You got a network, but at the same time, you're just like, oh my god, I'm exhausted, and I'm trying to work <laughs> a day job. And then initially, I was I was working in City Tix, and I was um, at City Center, and those are more flexible hours. Mm. You worked there for a good length of time. Right? Oh yeah, I worked there for eight years. I worked in City Ticks for about a year, and then I and then when I realized I could get benefits working upstairs at the reception desk I decided to do that and the only problem I had ever working reception was a I'm trying to like go to auditions on my lunch break and I'd have to wait for somebody to come up and cover my lunch break and that there were a lot of classes I wanted to take that were during the day Mm -hmm. and I couldn't take them because I was working reception I'm like I could do a night class or something So there were a lot of things that I, of course, had to figure out. Are you starting to formulate a plan of
1: things you want to do while you're working your way to Broadway?
0: The first time I had a real draft of my solo show was around 2000. And I realized I wanted to do that. You know, at the time, it was about being what, you know, I knew I was a white girl getting cast as black and Hispanic all the time. As I said, I didn't know my heritage at the mm-hmm. time because my dad never talked about his side of the family. And, and well, what was your
1: dad's side of the my family? My
0: dad's side of the family is West Indian. His parents were from Grenada. You know, and, and here I was, you know, and, and this was part of my complication as I'm trying to audition for things where I'm auditioning for all these roles. And there were several times when I'm going in for musical theater auditions and I'm the darkest person in line. And if I'm the darkest person in line, something is vastly wrong. How would you describe yourself to people listening who can't see you? I would definitely be considered light skinned. I always joke that in Boston, I'm black. In New York, I'm considered Puerto Rican. Though I'm like black, Puerto Rican you know, everybody sort of is like, what is she? Hence the title of my show, Single What Female? Because I had a lot of people that couldn't figure it out you know, when I started working on my solo show, I'm like, I'm going to do this solo show. And and then part of it came from a college thing in my directing class. I think we had to do something in our lives. And I talked about being, you know, because I was starting to do community theater and other things my senior year, and I'm taking this directing class. And I did a bit about my being cast in, you know, as black or Hispanic and being a white girl. And, And I used my drums and then I did that whole thing, you know, where Bob Dylan has the cards. I had everything I wanted to say on placards. And so somebody held those cards for me while I played a rhythm from a particular Prince (laughs) song (laughs) on the drums. So that was sort of the little spark that started this project. Hence my using my drums at the end of the show for that. So it was mostly about telling my story, and it just happened to also include things I can do. And what kind of response did you get to that show? I got good response. You know, for the people who saw, it, they're like, "This is great. This is really interesting. What are you trying to do with it?" Well, you you certainly got an entry into the no-name uh, I did we, get we no we name world. We were
1: starting to do our our uh, late night uh, comedy variety mix, and you did like everything at some point or another I with guess. us. You told stories. You you sang a song a cappella. On one night, and we weren't used to having a lot of singers in there. There was not a dry eye or a breath left in the house. But you want to tell the story because that's a great story.
0: Basically, I I told a story basically about being a dateless wonder and how I found this wonderful version of Sarah Vaughn singing Embraceable You and how when I found that, and I believe I found that cassette, like my late time in high school where I figured if I could learn to sing this particular version, which only seems to be on this particular cassette <laughs> that I bought at strawberries on S- Memorial drive in Boston, I almost said Storrow drive, but that was the opposite direction where I just was like, Oh my God, this is such a great sassy version of this song. And I thought if I could sing this song, I could get any man that I ever wanted. I also connected it because I was obsessed with Maya Angelou at the time to a story she told about how she had just gotten an award. She was really successful. And then she goes to this bar and she realized she has no one to celebrate with. And she ends up having five martinis. And ends up talking to this table of young gentlemen and asking why, why can't I find someone special in my life? And so I was like, it's feeling so I felt that was like, why can't I find somebody special in my life? And so I said, you know what? I found this version of Embraceable You by Sarah Vaughan that I think is going to find me <laughs> that special person. So I sang that, that is definitely going to my cabaret show, by the way. Um, and
1: that right there is we to go trust
0: yeah, me and 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 i had just so much fun doing it so it garnered good response from the what three drunk people that were there that night and generally when i've done it people enjoy it
1: so you're in scott's new york and you're taking what work you can get and yes. you're working on your own stuff working mm-hmm. on my
0: own stuff i started directing and i was almost focusing on that one of the things i like so much about
1: you, uh, and one of the reasons I thought you'd be good to to have a guest on a podcast that's all about the experience of being an artist in New York City, is that you're one of the few people, I, from the time I met you, that's like 20 some odd years now, yeah. to now, and including through pandemic, you're one of a small handful of people I know the entire time is always living the actor's life, living the... Performer's life, living the artist's life, I mean during pandemic, even in the slowest times, any given week, you might be doing an online audition for something that may or may not happen. play readings via zoom, like you were just always filling up your life with art every minute. How is
0: the hunger had the hunger transformed for you over the years? The hunger has been there though. You know, for a a while, there wasn't a lot of work. Whether that was, I auditioned poorly, and I'm not saying that I was brilliant every single audition. But when you're not working, you're wondering, should I keep doing this? Mm. And then you're wondering, is it, you know, particularly as I found out more about my heritage and things like that, I'm like, and you're looking on stages and you're not seeing enough people who look like you on stage. And you're wondering, is that part of it? And so there were definitely times when I was considering dropping out of the business completely or finding a new facet or just going into music or whatever. But there would always be something that drew me in. Like I would, you know, you get a gig, you get a show, you get a reading, a composer asks you to do a concert. So you feel like you can't just leave you know you still feel like you have something to contribute and you know and sometimes and, and,
1: it's a matter of trying to find out where and how
0: yeah because like particularly after you know when i when i became pregnant and i remember i i found out i was pregnant in like the spring of 2011 and i'm like what can i audition for because like in the spring <laughs> they're auditioning for things in the summer or the fall And I'm like, are they going to accept me for when I'm this big in the fall? And like, I think I could have gotten away with things that were happening in the summer. But I was getting pickier with what I was auditioning Mm -hmm. for. I remember a handful of things that I really wanted to do were going to be in the fall and the winter. And I was going to be the size of a house. So you you have to
1: start looking for things that are being listed as, as, as ethnically ambiguous and possibly pregnant
0: yeah right and uh, i you know that's not an open oh, that's man not a thing
1: river. Yeah. wait no that's that's well you know no one's gonna ask you yeah. to sing it right
0: I, I remember that and then you know and i was just focusing on my son for a long time but i would still like try to do concerts i,
1: I <laughs> ben, i'm going to tell the story now his will. Uh, had early exposure to showbiz. Yes,
0: my my. I always love telling this story. Michael R. Jackson, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning and Tony nominated composer and writer of A Strange Loop, I met him through the wonderful composer Rachel Peters, who started out in musical theater and is now primarily doing contemporary opera. So much fantastic stuff.
1: Yeah, they are both amazing, amazing artists. And by the way, bragging rights, both have been featured composers in No Name Umbrella shows.
0: Yes. So Rachel and Michael had written a piece called Handmade 2012, which basically lists all the abortion laws that are still on the books around the country. And the New York Musical Theater Festival was going on, and every four years, they would do a show that dealt with politics every campaign year. So they were doing Handmade 2012 at the uh, New York Musical Theater Festival show. And I had sung that at a different concert. My son was about six months old at the time. (laughs) Rachel had asked me to do the song uh, with the other members because there were about four of us that were singing the song. Um, I was like, of course I will. But I said, I'm going to, do you know when we're going on? Because I'm going to have to bring my son. And they were like, that's fine. So I basically showed up probably about 15, 20 minutes before the song. I've got my baby strapped to me. And then just before the show, I like got him in the portable crib. I put him at the lip of the stage. I sing a song about abortion rights. <laughs> and I remember like as I lowered my son, I heard this guffaw from the audience. And that was Michael Jackson. Um, and that was the first time I met him. After the song, I picked my son up, strapped him to me, picked up the thing, and there was some chuckling from the audience. (laughs) That you know, after singing a song about abortion rights, about picking up my child, but I mean, that's the whole thing about choice, and you know, and to be able to still get out there. I mean, to this day, it can still be problematic when you are trying to do childcare and you're trying to be a performer, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you may not have all the support of grandparents or other family. And childcare is expensive.
1: Since you became part of No Name family, uh, you got married. You bought a house where we're talking to you right yeah. now, house <laughs> Valentine. You had a child. You also uh, were a creator and host of uh, one of our No Name shows for close to five years. Still officially on hiatus. We hope to bring it back at some yes. point. No Name presents the Uptown Cabaret. How has getting married and buying a house and having a family, you still have the hunger. You still have specific yes. goals.
0: Um, you know, Broadway will always be a goal. And I still have the hunger to just do stuff, to perform, to create, to be part of this thing um, that is the performing arts. Do you have any any particular aspects of performing that you enjoy more
1: than others? Like what, what, what brings you the most immediate joy?
0: I mean, do? immediate joy will always be some form of theater, whether it is storytelling or it is uh, performing in a play or doing musical theater, theater. So and singing. God knows I love singing. I can't say that just regular singing doesn't tell stories the same way because they are, of course, story songs and, you know, getting a crowd riled up and that. I mean, uh and now you're part Again, of Binder Sue's. Yes, at Binder uh, where uh, my wonderful collaborator, Richard Binder, who is also the tenor at my church gig, he and I do mashups of various songs, and it can be anywhere from two songs to like five, though I think our largest was eight songs. <laughs> that is something that will always give me a kick. But musical theater, I mean, has just been this, you know, thing in my soul for so long. Yeah. And I love helping tell those stories through music and, you know, working on the cabaret, finding new meanings to various musical theater songs um, or finding, oh, this is what the story really is and how to pass that along has, is, is always just something. But I mean, I, I mean, I love also performing with the band. I mean, one of my favorite moments in life will always be, I had auditioned for blue man group, Back in the late 90s, when you could see Blue Man Group at the Charles Playhouse in Boston. I don't know if they still do this, but on Wednesdays between shows, the band of Blue Man Group would have a jam session. So pretty much anyone could join in. Mm -hmm. And I remember one point, like they had the guitarist and I think the bassist and maybe a keyboardist from the band. Mm -hmm. And they were playing on stage, but they didn't have a drummer. And I was waiting. I'm there with my then boyfriend. And I was like, nobody's playing drums. And so I had sticks with me because I'd heard they were doing this. And this is the reason we came to that particular production. So I went up and I started playing drums. Suddenly people started getting out on the dance floor because it was playing a funky beat. What else are you going to do? And people started getting out on the dance floor and like the bassist is joining in and the guitarist is like figuring it out. And next thing you know, we just had like a crowd on the floor and they're dancing and they're hooting and they're hollering. And you're just like, oh that is the best. Having that shared experience is just so fun. Dream gig? God, just uh, a Broadway show, honestly. And I'm trying to think of a bucket roll. There's a wonderful group that I've been part of, a musical theater book club, where rather than read a book every month, we read through a musical. Right now we're ready. We're getting ready to do Follies We did a reading of A Man of No Importance, and I would love to do the role of Lily if they ever revive this show. Their songs are fantastic. It's a great role. So I would love to do that. I would love to do another Encores production. I would love to do Into the Woods is Coming Back to Broadway. I'm like, I will gladly be in the ensemble of that production. So hey there, people, I'm available. (laughs) Um, If you need this alto... I'm available. Um and the
1: cabaret show, what do you hope to do with that?
0: It's one of those things where I want to have a good time. Yes, I want it to be something that perhaps you know, people see it and go, "Oh, I want to cast her." But at the same time I'm like, I realize that I have this opportunity right now to have a fun time on stage. I I have booked some really incredible musicians. I have an excellent director and musical director we're going to put together a really cool and fun and thoughtful show where I want people to walk out feeling empowered, having had a really good time and having an amazing experience.
1: Do you see this as just essentially a one-off the three performances? or Would you like to do this, this kind of format regularly?
0: I think I would like to do this kind of format regularly. This is another thing where getting into the cabaret world Can be challenging, particularly for people of color, because if you just look at advertising for cabaret, you do not see a lot of people of color. Because I think of James Jackson Jr., who is in a strange loop. He and this other wonderful singer, LaDonna Burns, have a show they call The Black Ups. They would do these cabaret performances at like Joe's Pub and other such venues. And so they've had a show. But at the time, like, until I knew James, I met James when Michael Jackson was part of where I had Michael be part of a featured performer as mm. of No Name Presents the Uptown Cabaret. Yeah. I did not know them. I did not hear about them in the uh, cabaret world. And it's like, I know I haven't been part of like the inner circle <laughs> of things. But at the same time, I'm like, why shouldn't I have heard about these people?
1: Why? Why? I can't wrap a discussion without talking about the Uptown Cabaret series that we did do and all the people that passed through our doors who do amazing work. You mentioned Rachel Peters, who's like now Marla's. writing operas. But we, we have a, a point of pride in the upcoming Tony Awards, A Strange Loop.
0: 11 Tony Nations. Features, nominations. features
1: yes. three people who have a no-name past, most prominently Michael R. Jackson, the composer and writer of the show, was one of our featured composers. We had a monthly featured composer, also featured James Jackson in the ensemble for this yes. show, right? Uh, the show itself had been nominated, and uh, was it Best Supporting Actor, is it?
0: John Andrew Morrison um, is Best Supporting Actor. Who's
1: performed in a handful of no-name shows, including a. Uh, a few years had come by to sing a Rachel Peters composition, Santa Ain't Black, kind of no-names, unofficial holiday (laughs) Holiday song, song. Christmas Carol. Talk a little bit about that and about the night that Michael was actually our featured composer.
0: Well, I I felt lucky enough to be able to work with a lot of really wonderful composers or get to know them. Katya Stanislavskaya, Robert Kiki. Robert Kiki's uh, musical Percy and the Lightning Thief was on Broadway for at least a year and a half, something like that. And he's got more work coming out. Koch has got great music and shows out there. You know, I've had these people as feature composers, Clay Zambo, Rachel Peters, great. and we had Michael Jackson. I was able to be part of a concert of his and Rachel's work. They've They've collaborated on various songs as well as a show. And that night was particularly uh i'm trying to think of the best word for that because audra mcdonald she and her husband will swenson had recently moved to the neighborhood and had become regulars at the indian road cafe where we held the show and they happened to have gone there for dinner and decided to stick around for michael's show mm-hmm. and i remember michael posting on facebook like audra's oh, here no pressure and michael writes A lot of uncomfortable songs. If you've seen A Strange Loop, which is a show I consider necessary, it covers a lot of ground and has uncomfortable moments. And they're only uncomfortable because they hadn't really been discussed before, particularly in musical theater. And he had a song that night dealing with Whitney Houston and her passing Uh, And it was not long after her passing, so there are some people that might think that's too soon, whatever, uncomfortable. Audra was fully engaged the entire Mm -hmm. time, the entire show. And that's one thing that I love about his work and being able to, at the time, this was 2014, sort of show it off. Cause that was my goal was to like show off these people that mm-hmm. I got to work mm-hmm. with and got to hear these amazing pieces. Some of these people were getting work all the time. And some of these people they should have been getting more work and more yeah. recognition. So I was like, I'm going to show them off. It's like, if you don't know these people now you do. And now please go out and see these people. Lauren Marcus, um, whose husband, Joey Iconis wrote, be more chill and has a new show called punk rock girl. She's written great stuff in her own right yeah. and had a marvelous set. Uh, she had a residency at Rockwood Music Hall not too long ago. And I saw that. And um, I believe she's up yeah, from she, she was up for a Mac composer. Yeah, she was a featured composer. There's so many great people out there. And I'm so glad there are so many more. If I was able to do the show right now, I could give you a whole list of people that I would have as featured composers. Right now, that yeah. are new and up and coming and emerging artists, and we, some are more established than others. But the thing is, they're writing great stuff that needs to be heard. Maybe we can wrap up by saying, let's try to
1: make a special effort as reopen continues and fits and spurts, and go see a strange loop. This is an important piece of work. Support it because it's a great and important evening of theater. Such and, a great and,
0: show. So and many a talented to our
1: people, friends, and past no-name guests, Michael R. Jackson, John Andrew Morrison, and James Jackson Jr. Alex, remind folks again where they can find you and <laughs> what are the dates
0: of that show again? You can find me on Facebook at just Alex D'Souza. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at NN Uptown Cabaret. though mostly Instagram. And my cabaret show, Late Bloomer, will be at Don't Tell Mama, September 28th, October 12th, and October 15th. 7 p.m. shows. It's going to be a good time. Get a website? com. All right. Is that good? You feel good? I feel good. I knew that you would. Thanks for being here.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> And that was Alex D'Souza. Man, she's such a, a wonderful human being and a super, super talented person. We're glad she spent some time with us. Before we get out of here, I'd like to thank Alex for being here. I'd like to thank you for being here. I'd like to thank our producer, Gary Hardcastle. I'd like to thank our production assistant, Stanley Rescio. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Till next time, take care of yourselves. Until we meet again in person or virtually, I love you all. Hi, it's Eric Vetter again, and if you're still here, congratulations—you've landed in what we call bonus content. Uh, we had a great conversation with Alex D'Souz, uh, and now we got a little bit more. Uh, sometimes we like to share uh, war stories, uh, you know, battle stories from artists. Uh, you know, the 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 time it was most difficult to get an owner to pay you for a gig, uh, the worst audience ever. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of artists talk about their struggles finding roles, you know, if you're an actor, finding roles after you get out of college. Uh, Alex shares a story with us about troubles getting roles before she even got out of college. Uh, and after that, we're going to have, uh, some music from one of our good friends, Jordan Oakland, an amazing, uh, singer, songwriter, uh, for a number of years, he was in New York and was, part of the summer replacements, and uh, what we have here is one of his songs, a song called Higher Mind, and we thought it was cool. He sent us a version of him doing this live, and since we haven't been able to get together and do our in-person shows the way we are accustomed to doing, um, we thought it'd be fun to catch a snippet of Jordan performing live. It's a great song, it's a great performance, and we hope you enjoy it, Uh, so stick around. But first, let me tell you that our bonus content, the No Name NYC podcast bonus content, is sponsored by Word Up Community Bookshop in Washington Heights. Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. Uh, They have a great selection of new and used books, uh, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, uh, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer staffed, and uh, they also have programs for young people. Uh, There are artist events, uh, author events. There are writing workshops, so please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them out out at wordupbooks.com and uh, support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. So whenever you're in Washington Heights, uptown New York City, be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop. Are you a theater major? Yes. So you're doing lots of shows or whatever.
0: I was trying to do lots of shows. Did your time there prepare
1: you for the next step of going into the world and being Uh, a performer? Um,
0: in a way, yes. You know, I wanted to do the musical every year. Like we had a spring musical and I think a fall musical, and I could not get cast. And what killed me was that basically I want it's like I knew I could sing. And so I didn't take the musical theater class. Don't ask me why. I was dumb. Um, I didn't take the musical theater class in college until my senior year. And, you know, here I am working with the, the one person who directed the musicals and the one person who was the musical director at my college the musical director i remember like my senior like taking this class he's like have you have you ever auditioned for the musicals and i was like every year <laughs> i have auditioned every damn year and he's like i don't i don't know why i don't understand why you haven't been cast i don't understand and i was like i don't either if you're yeah. if you're feeling the same way um because i'm like i would have done the ensemble but i remember like the teacher would told me he said you're too big for the ensemble and i was like okay I have a presence where some people might think I'm quote unquote too big for Mm -hmm. the ensemble. I mean, I might not have recognized it, but other people did. But at the same time, like when I'm entering the real world, like I would get cast in the ensemble. Like one of my first jobs out of college was doing um, a production of showboat at North shore music theater. And I was part of the ensemble. This
2: Got a decision to stay blind or benight the vision to a high.
1: Well, uh, again, thanks for hanging out. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, man, I love these people. I love their work. Uh, and I, it just occurred to me. It's kind of cool to have them together. We've uh, Myself, Alex, and Jordan have all performed music together and, and, and all sorts of stuff, and now all <laughs> individual stuff. Uh, so anyway, thanks to Alex D'Souza for a great conversation. Uh, thanks to Jordan, Jordan Oakland. Uh, That's O-K-R-E-N-D. Definitely Google him. Check him out. He's got lots of really great music that's out there for sale and for listening. Uh, So check him out. Uh, And that's about it. Uh, If you like what you're hearing here, uh, please let people know. Post links. Share it with your friends. Get the word out. We got to get people knowing what we're doing. We're talking about artists in New York City. Uh, and we're talking about it through the No Name NYC podcast. Thanks for being here. Hope to see you again soon or hear you again soon or something like that. Uh, Just take care and be well. I'm Eric Vetter.